Good morning. I just want to reiterate Scott's welcome to everyone and say we're so grateful that you have decided to honor us with your time. I'm pretty excited to be here this morning. I'm excited because I got to wear big girl clothes today, put on some makeup and see some faces that uh, are not my immediate family. As, as much as I love them, my world's been pretty small this past year and uh, interaction with people has been pretty limited as it has been for a lot of people. But sometimes I think it hasn't been such a bad thing to be at home um, because it seems like our world these days is a political minefield. We've had a lot of big issues come to the forefront that, that people are wrestling with. And sometimes um, a misstep can lead to things like being canceled on social media or losing relationships with family and friends, maybe even losing your job. It, it seems like it can be a pretty dangerous world out there right now. So as believers, how do we navigate this political minefield in a way that reflects Christ to those around us? What do we do with these issues that are so polarized? And it seems like both ends of the spectrum can use the scriptures to justify their position. Um, I remember when I was in high school, I was in grade nine, and I remember it pretty clearly. I was sitting on a bench with a friend of mine, um, and we were talking. And I don't know how it came up, but I told her that I was a Christian. And she had a physical reaction. Like she recoiled to the corner of the bench and she was like, oh, you're one of those people that are brainwashed. My dad says all you guys are brainwashed. I tried to convince her I wasn't, but quite honestly, if I was brainwashed, would I even know it? So, um, you know, in a way I can understand where she's coming from. Historically, the church has been pretty intimately intertwined with politics and you can see it all through history. Um, you can see it all over the world still, even, even here in Canada and certainly in wider North America. And sometimes we want to tell people what to think. We want to tell people what to think because it's easy and because it's a way that we can um, push forward our own agenda, a way to kind of control and manipulate things. But that's not really the way the, the Bible rolls. The Bible really encourages us to think for ourselves. There are lots of scriptures that talk about examining, wrestling with things, trying to reason things out. Now, I am going to try to get my scripture up. Where am I pointing this? Am I pointing this back? Here. Oh, thank you so much, Scott. Okay, so Proverbs fourteen fifteen. It says, the simple believe everything, but the clever consider their steps. 2 Timothy 2.7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in all things. And finally, Scott talked about this last week, Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And last week, Scott gave us a little bit of a uh, a different way to look at this verse saying, what, what does it mean to have our minds renewed? It means to keep our minds open and not be so 
stuck on an idea that we cling to that above all else. Now, Jesus is a great example of what we call critical thinking. And when I talk about critical thinking, I'm not meaning to criticize, but it's using the ability that we have to reason and sift through information, to question things, to wrestle with ideas, to deconstruct things and then reconstruct them and come up with our own informed position. All throughout scripture, Jesus encouraged and maybe even pushed people to think critically, to test what they thought they knew and why they, they thought they knew it. In 1 John, Jesus encourages us to think when he, when he says, test the spirits, test the prophets and what they say. So don't take things just because I say them up here on a Sunday morning. Um, don't take that as the truth. Test it out. Take it and wrestle with it and see what it means to you. In 1 John 4.20, Jesus says, Those who say I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they haven't seen. Like That's a pretty weighty statement there. And it really would have challenged the way a lot of people operated, and maybe it even challenges the way that we operate today. So a couple of other examples where where Jesus was really kind of pushing the envelope in a lot of ways. In Luke 14, Jesus is on his way to have dinner with a leader of the Pharisees, and he comes across someone, a man, who's ill, and he turns to the Pharisees that were traveling with him, and he says, so... So should I heal on Sabbath or, you know, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And those wise men didn't have an answer. And Jesus said, you know, if one of you has a child or an ox that's fallen into the well, will you not immediately pull it out on a Sabbath day? When I read between the lines here, I think what Jesus is saying, you know, God created the Sabbath for us because we needed a rest. So he kind of implemented that. He was showing his care for his children. I think what Jesus is saying here is, so don't you think that healing someone shows God's care? He was really kind of pushing this idea of the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. So if we're going to follow Jesus' example and do a little bit of critical thinking ourselves, you know, about the the issues that are kind of up front for us these days. What are some of the strategies that we can use to kind of help navigate our way through this? One of the first things is acknowledging that the world is nuanced and complex. We like black and white. Black and white is pretty safe. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. We know what we should do. We know what we shouldn't do. But really, if you think deeply about any issue, there are a lot of nuances and um, things that are complex about it. And the, the older I get, the more I realize that the world is a lot more gray than it is black and white. But the gray isn't comfortable because it forces us to have to think and it forces us to have to wrestle with things. And in that gray zone, 
it actually opens us up to be more compassionate and gracious to those around us because we understand that the way that I see the world and the way that I experience the world is not the same as the way anyone else experiences the world. And Paul addressed this in Romans when there seemed to be some kind of dispute in the community about what people should eat. You know, I guess some of them were vegetarians, some of them were eating meat. So, so Paul says, let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Like, honestly, we could stop there and spend a lot of time just on that sentence. Um, but he goes on to write, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for you to make others fall by what you eat. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. The faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. So Paul's saying here, what you eat is not really an issue. Now, whether what you eat causes your brother or sister to stumble, that's where the issue comes in. And then he goes on to say, whatever your conviction is, hold your conviction quietly before God. There's another version that says, do you have conviction? Keep it to yourself before God. That's a far cry from the world we live in right now with social media, where the minute something pops into our head, we can blast it out into the universe, you know, on our phones, on our computers. The reaction is often so instantaneous that we forget to employ any kind of filter. You know, back in the day when, say, you had a letter or you heard something, you know, you had some sort of emotional reaction to, and you'd think to yourself, oh, the next time I see that person, I'm going to say so-and-so. Well, between the time that you experienced something and the time you see that person, there was time to to think, to filter things out, not so much anymore. Things are instantaneous. They come into our mind and out our fingers. Now, when we acknowledge there are nuances, and like I said, and we move from that black to white to gray, it's an unsettling place to be. It's undefined. We have to wrestle with things. And and sometimes we really would just rather have someone tell us what to think and what to do. But that's not really the way that we should be. We we need to be wrestling with things, understanding, you know, compassionately that everyone has a different, mm, a trendy word is social location. So everyone comes from a different, or intersectionality, comes from a different perspective, comes from a different um, experience. So as we move on with this idea of critical thinking, The next piece is check your sources. So we live in a world with a lot of information at our fingertips. And the reality is that everyone comes with an agenda. So we all come from a certain position, experience, history. Uh, We come with our baggage and our ideas and expectations. And so no piece of information is completely objective. Even as I stand here, or Scott stands here, or Tab stands here, uh, Patrick, when we teach, we're all coming from our own position, and we all have our own 
bias. That's just, it's just the way that it is. I can't see the world any other way than the way that I see it. Uh, and it's particularly important then to check our sources, to check the facts, to weigh it against, you know, what does the Bible say? What do other sources say? Really trying to look at all angles. Um, Scott talked about that last week when he talked about reading all these different books and how he's kind of um, working through this issue of racism and, and you know, where does he fit into that and, and what does he think? And that's a great example to read all kinds of sources. Sometimes I feel like as Christians, all we want to do is read Christian sources. All we want to do is read things that kind of confirm what we already think. And that's something called confirmation bias, where we surround ourselves with people who think the same and we just read the information that kind of confirms what we already think. But if we're going to take some information or an idea and form our own position on that, we should make sure that that information is solid. And that's what Jesus was talking about in John 1st, when he was talking about testing the word of the prophets, test the spirits, make sure that what you're hearing and acting on stands up against the truth. And finally, here's a tough one. Seek to understand first. The prayer of St. Francis is so beautiful, and it has this line, grant that I may not so much seek to be understood as to understand. That is such a position of humility and a position that Christ modeled for us. We have the story in... In Luke 10, 25 and 26, this is the story where Jesus is sharing and a man stands up and depending on what version of the Bible you're reading, he's a lawyer or a scholar or a teacher. And he stands up and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, well, what's written in the law? What do you read there? So Jesus is asking him first, tell me how you understand it. So the man says, well, you know, love your God, love your neighbor. Jesus says, awesome, that's the way I understand it too. And then, you know, the teacher or the, the lawyer, the scholar, whoever says, well, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus goes on to tell him the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's interesting. So I just said everyone has an agenda, right? It's really interesting when you read this verse in Luke 10, um, 25 and 26, it says, just then a lawyer stood up, and then there's these three words, to test Jesus. So those three words position the next bit of the story for the reader. So it's positioned as an adversarial exchange because we're thinking this guy is standing up to test Jesus. So in my mind, he's kind of aggressive or haughty or whatever it is. But unless the writer of Luke actually went up to that guy afterwards and said, hey, so tell me a little bit about why you asked Jesus that question. We don't know. We don't. We're taking his word for it. That is his perspective and his interpretation of the exchange. If we take those three words out, 
the whole demeanor of that exchange can change. Suddenly, it becomes two people trying to understand each other. So maybe, maybe the scholar really was asking this question legitimately. And he wanted to know, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, well, why don't you tell me how you understand this? Guy tells him, Jesus says, great, that's the way I understand it too. Go out and do it. And the guy has another question then, but who's my neighbor? Getting in deeper. So then Jesus tells him the parable, the Good Samaritan. And at the end of the exchange, that lawyer or scholar has something new, a new idea to sit with and to think about. And I'm wondering, is this how we approach others? Particularly in this time when some of the issues are really charged, are we approaching one another with a desire to understand and with the humility, trying to understand one another, understanding that there are nuances and uh, everything's nuanced and complex? Or are we going into these conversations guns blazing, hoping that somehow we're going to trample the person with all the things that we know and they're going to be converted to our way of thinking? Humans are built to seek approval. So when we, we get a dopamine high when we're right, when we feel like we're right. So dopamine is the neurotransmitter that helps us to feel pleasure. So when we think we're right, we get a hit, we feel great. The same thing happens on social media. When we post something and we get a bunch of likes or we get people that are agreeing with us, we get a dopamine high. And that's some of the research has been showing that that's one of the reasons that people get um, addicted to social media is this high that we get. And particularly this last year when we've been pretty isolated and we don't get that same dopamine high from, say, hugging a friend or, you know, a really good conversation or something. So some of us are getting our dopamine highs off of social media. The problem with social media is that all we see are words. And then we filter those words through our own experience, through our own filters. We don't have the body language or the um, voice inflections to give us any kind of a clue as to what that the person meant when they posted. And so it's pretty easy to get into um, conflict when we're sitting behind our screen and behind our keyboard. People say things on social media. Have you ever noticed this? People say things on social media they would never say to someone face-to-face. Especially when you know people and you think, oh my gosh, that person would never say that if they were face-to-face with somebody. I've seen so many posts over the last year on social media where people are talking about how they're going to call their friend list because, you know, people are aggressive or disrespectful or negative, and so they're unfriending them, which is kind of a passive-aggressive way of saying, I don't agree with you. And um, So we get a lot of this kind of stuff going on behind the scenes that would never happen face-to-face, and then, of course, we're living in this world where so much is happening online that it, it can escalate where you can see, you know, someone post something and then you get a, someone answering aggressively and then someone else who doesn't even know that person that answered is now answering them and you got stuff going on. And at the end of it, nothing changes. 
you, you just had this exchange. Maybe people got hurt. Nothing changed. Nobody's mind changed. Nobody was open to hearing a different perspective. It was just what I call ugly. It was just ugly online. And um, I tend to stay away from those. So when when we seek to understand somebody, the, the whole demeanor of our interaction changes. And so as we go through the rest of whatever, however long this pandemic is going to be and however long we wrestle with these really um, important issues, let's, let's move forward. I love the song that we sang, Give Me Wisdom to See Things Like You Do. So, you know, as we go into these conversations, interactions, let's go with that heart of, I want to understand you and asking the Lord for wisdom. But understanding is not only about the other person, it's understanding what happens to us in these interactions as well. Why is it that we feel triggered and like we need to answer some things on Facebook when we know it's never going to change anything? One of the best tools that I've encountered recently, this really made a huge impact on my life, but also on the lives of a lot of the clients I work with, is something called the drama triangle. Let's see if I can find this. Okay, so here it is. It's called the Cartman Drama Triangle. And Stephen Cartman was uh, a doctor, and he came up with this model to kind of um, capture or give us an understanding of what happens in, in kind of dysfunctional communication. So according to Cartman, throughout our lives, we learn behavioral patterns, or what he called games. And we, we learn these games, or really the rules about how we should act at school and in our family, at work, out in um, society, in church. We learn these rules, and when I or these games, as um, Cartman called them. And when I talk about games, it's the kind of thing where you all know that your boss is drinking in her office, but nobody talks about the smell of alcohol on her breath or that she's weaving as she's walking through the office. Those are the kinds of games I'm talking about. The things that we know are unwritten rules that you don't talk about certain things, you don't address certain things. And the reason that these games exist is because they help us avoid intimacy they help us protect ourselves. They help us avoid the actual issue. Um, and these games might be played for excitement, stimulation. They might be a habit, or it might be that we just don't know any other way to operate. There are three main roles in the triangle. You can see up at the top left, there's the persecutor. Up at the top right, there's the rescuer and there's a victim. And there's a reason it's in a triangle because the persecutor and the rescuer um, roles are one-up roles. They make us feel a little superior. The victim role is the one-down role. It makes us feel inferior. And in this drama triangle, that's where we want people to be, right? We want them to feel inferior. And all of these roles have some kind of a payoff. And I'm not going to go into it too much because um, we just don't have the time this morning, but if you're interested, give me a call. But the persecutor role is usually aggressive, blaming, um, accusatory. The victim role is helpless, powerless, needy, maybe passive-aggressive. 
The rescuer jumps in where they don't belong and offers help that is either inappropriate or beyond their capabilities. And we get hooked into this drama triangle. And the way that we get hooked is that someone throws out an invitation. So the persecutor might start out aggressively looking for some kind of a victim. The victim might start out incredibly needy, looking for someone to rescue them. And the rescuer might just insinuate themselves into some sort of scenario where they don't belong. And once that invitation is thrown out, we have a choice to either engage or to sidestep that invitation. But we only have a choice if we know what's going on, if we're aware that an invitation has been thrown out. And the thing is, when we accept that invitation into the triangle, the end result is that nothing gets solved. So if we think of, you know, social media, someone posts something, um, you know, that could be uh, inflammatory, and that's the invitation, right? And then we can either choose to engage or just kind of sidestep that. So what do we do when someone extends an invitation to the drama triangle. And like I said, we either accept or decline. And Jesus was a master of sidestepping this drama triangle. And I often think of the story of the woman. So this woman's caught in adultery. The guys bring her over and, um, You know, in verse 2, it says, Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Now they said this to test him so that they might have some charges to bring against him. So here they are throwing out that invitation, right? Hey, Jesus, we found this woman um, committing adultery. Do we stone her? And we won't go into, you know, all of the nuances of this particular story, like if she was caught in adultery, where's the guy she was caught with? We don't know. Um, (laughs) You know, he may have been given a free pass. Um, So they're throwing this invitation out, right? Trying to get Jesus to engage so that they can somehow find something that they can trip him up with and start this drama. And what does Jesus do? So Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Wow. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not sin again. That was masterful, that Jesus just sidestepped that whole 
invitation into the drama triangle. And he diffused the situation, just refused to engage. So the, the drama triangle is not meant as a tool for us to use as a weapon to say, oh, why are you coming at me like a persecutor? Why are you doing this role? Why are you doing that role? It's not really about the other person, although understanding what's going on is really important, but it's really more about us. When that invitation is thrown out, what does it trigger in me? What role do I gravitate towards? How, you know, am I going to move into a persecutor role, a rescuer role, a victim role to uh, answer this invitation? So like I said, if you need more information on the drama triangle, let me know. I might do a little blurb later this week to kind of expand on it. Um, but it, like I said, it's more about what's going on inside of us. Can we recognize the invitations that are being thrown our way? What's it triggering inside of us? And what are the choices we have? And what do those choices look like? If I engage, what's going to be the end result? If I choose not to accept the invitation, what does that look like? And how do we step outside of the drama triangle? Sometimes we can get hooked in without realizing it and then suddenly realize and then step outside. So in this climate, it can, it can be pretty confusing to figure out what to think. There's, there are a lot of different points of view coming at us. But if we can keep in mind these three things that that every issue is nuanced and complex, that it's important to check our sources, that we need to go into our interactions seeking to understand the other person, but also what's going on inside of us so that we can respond in a way that reflects Christ, respond in a way that we can still uphold Christ's clear directive to love our neighbors. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are with us, even in this time that is so difficult with the pandemic and so tricky with um, so many issues in the forefront. And as we go through our days, Father, we just pray for your wisdom and pray that you would open our hearts and keep us humble that we would have a mind and a heart that was open to understanding others, to understanding what your will is for us, and that as we move through our days, we would always remember to love you and to love those around us.